But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Bringing swift destruction on themselves, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back harm for harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Well, um, this morning, as we just read, is about false teachers. And I get to teach on false teachers. So there's a potential irony there that makes me a little nervous. And so we're gonna start this off right. Um, we're gonna pray. Uh, I'm gonna pray, but I'm gonna ask that you don't just pray with me. Please pray for me. And I mean that sincerely. And so, yeah, let's pray together. Father in heaven, you tell us in scripture that only you and your Holy Spirit can reveal your son. We have no right to speak, 
to his character, to who he is. And so Lord, if I say anything about him that is not from you, Holy Spirit, let it fall on deaf ears. I pray no one hears it. If I say anything that is incorrect, misdirects or points people away from your son, Jesus, I pray that you forgive me. And once again, just help no one even hear it in the first place. And then on top of all that, Lord, I pray that you show up and um, reveal your son, Jesus, to every heart. I pray that sincerely in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so one of my best friends in college, um, after we graduated, he decided for some reason um, that he wanted to subject himself to like eight more years of school. And um, so he went on and he wanted to pursue his doctorate in religion and philosophy. And he was kind of specifically focused on church history for a while. Uh, me, on the other hand, it was by God's grace, I made it through four years. And so I graduation, I sprinted across that stage and basically vowed to never set foot in a classroom again. And so after we graduated, I went into ministry. My buddy went on to pursue and he later attained his PhD. Now, when I entered the ministry, I was in my early 20s. And so I think a lot of people would chalk this up to my age. Um, some people would say I was just naive. I personally would like to believe that it was genuine faith. Um, but when I went into ministry, I went in thinking, God's gonna use me to change the world. I genuinely believed that. I went into ministry thinking God's gonna use me to change the world. And here's why. I believe in the gospel with all my heart. I believe in the message of scripture. I believe the heart of what the Bible is truly about is what every single person needs more than anything else. I truly believe it with all my heart. And so God was gonna use me to change the world. Four years later, things were not as I had envisioned. There was a lot of good, great relationships. I'm thankful for my time. But what makes the gospel the gospel is that it literally transforms who you are. You can't encounter what this is truly about and be the same person five years later. It literally transforms you. And from that standpoint, I sure felt like there was very little fruit and so four years in, I was incredibly discouraged. I was sad, I was frustrated, I was confused. And I remember thinking, what happened? I remember thinking, what happened? I am not having near the effect that I was expecting with my life and ministry and pursuing, pursuing that. And so in the midst of all that, I called up my buddy and he was well into his doctorate at this point. Once again, religion, philosophy, and church history. And so I called him up with the original intent. I just wanted to catch up with my bud, but based on where I was at internally, I just ended up unloading on him. And basically I'm like, I was explaining my situation and I just remember asking him, I started asking him just all these questions. I said, you're literally, because once again, my buddy pursuing his PhD, I said, man, you are literally studying religion and church history for a living. All right, my buddy, you're engaging and learning from the absolute experts in this field. In my opinion, my friend is in the top probably 5% of people with thorough knowledge and understanding in this realm. 
And so I just remember asking him, what am I missing? Why does the gospel and the life of Jesus seem to be so irrelevant and ineffective? And my buddy, most even keel guy I think I've ever met, he gently responded and he said, Ben, the more I study church history, the more I study religion, the more I dive into the historical facts and learn from the experts in this field, many of whom aren't Christians. He said, from a purely historical perspective, completely unbiased, just based on the actual facts, historical facts, he says the evidence and the proof and the validity of the magnitude of Jesus Christ and his ministry. He's like, from, the out, from an outside secular, purely historical standpoint, he's like, the proof is undeniable. He said, any church historian or religion major worth their salt would laugh you out of the room if you tried to deny the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But then he went on to say this, and this is what I'm trying to get to. Even though there's all that outside historical evidence, he said, because of all that evidence, he said, the only way to defeat Christianity is to try and destroy it from within. And that always stuck out to me. The only way to defeat Christianity is to try and destroy it from within. And let's put Christianity to the side for a second. That concept applies to all areas of life. You wanna destroy something, do it from within. That applies to all of us personally. Yes, our external situations are important, but you really wanna destroy someone, you get their soul to surrender to indifference and emptiness. Once again, our external conditions, they matter. But to truly destroy a person, it's to get their soul to simply stop caring because true destruction comes from within. I don't know if you're a fan of Greek mythology, but if you are, how did the Greeks conquer the city of Troy? I don't know if you remember, but they, they laid siege to this massive city for over 10 years and they still had no success. And they finally realized the only way to conquer this magnificent city was to somehow get inside. So they built a wooden horse and they pretended to sail off. And the Trojans, as they saw them sail off, they thought they had victory. And so they opened the city gates and they pulled that wooden horse in as kind of a trophy, a symbol of victory. And they partied. After they were done partying, they all passed out. And while they were sleeping, some of the best Greek warriors snuck out from inside the Trojan horse. They went and they opened the city gates from the inside. The rest of the army that pretended they had sailed back under nightfall, and they were able to conquer the city. Along those same lines is Psalms chapter 55, verse 10. It says, a city's walls are patrolled day and night against invaders, but the real danger is the wickedness within the city. One of my biggest prayers as a father and as a husband, one of my biggest prayers, it's not that God protects my family from external attacks. Now, don't get me wrong, I do pray for that but it is not my highest priority. The number one thing I pray for is that God will protect my family from me. And what I mean by that is I know, I know from personal experience 
that there is a potential version of me capable of so much evil. And as much as I don't want, I don't want my kids to get bullied, I don't want them to ever struggle financially, socially, or academically. I don't want those things for my kids, but I know what would destroy my kids or my family more than anything else is for me or is for Satan to destroy who I am supposed to be as a father. If you wanna destroy a family, you attack it from within. Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 25, he says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. He said, every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If you can divide something from within, it will collapse. And Jesus's words, his truth, they apply to himself and his kingdom and his family. And I think Satan knows that. So if Satan wants to defeat Christianity, his best bet is to try and destroy it from within. And that, my friends, is what I believe this passage is all about. This entire chapter is Peter warning the early church, but not just the early church. Guys, he's warning us. He's warning you and he's warning me. He's trying to tell us, hey, one of Satan's many tactics to try and destroy your true faith will be by entering Christianity and entering the church from within. But what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that even look like? Well, that's what he tells us in the very first verse, all right? The first half of the first verse. So let's look at that real quick, all right? This is the first half of the first verse. It says, Peter says, hey, there used to be false prophets among the people. And in the same way, nowadays, there's gonna be false teachers among you. And so Satan will infiltrate Christianity and the church with individuals who will falsely teach, misrepresent, and distract people away from the foundational truth on which Christianity stands. Now, real quick side note, I originally wasn't gonna do this, but I think it's too important not to. You might be tempted to start pointing out all of the false teachers you know. Don't do that. Don't do that. If that's your primary focus, that's honestly probably just an indication that you're a false teacher. And the bottom line is we're all false teachers. I promise you, I guarantee it. We have all falsely taught, misrepresented and pointed people away from the foundational truth on which Christianity stands. So this isn't about pointing out false teachers. This is about examining ourselves and seeing, are we becoming genuine vessels of the truth? Okay, and so then that begs the question, what is the foundational truth that we're all supposed to be focused on? Well, Peter hints at it in the second part of the first verse, all right? So the verse continues. He says, hey, there's gonna be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Bam, that's where most people stop. Destructive heresies. False teaching is destructive heresies, right? And so we're tempted to stop there. Don't get me wrong. Destructive heresies are bad and we need to be aware of them but I think Satan can use that to distract us. Destructive heresies aren't the ultimate issue. They're simply a symptom of the greater issue, okay, which Peter reveals next. He says, false teachers, they will introduce destructive heresies, but here it is. He says, even, and that word there implies something greater. 
Not only will they introduce destructive heresies, they will even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. So at the root of all false teaching is the denial within an individual's heart regarding who the sovereign Lord truly is. And that happens at a heart level. That's why we can't point out false teachers. The only heart you have access to is your own. And false teaching wants us within our hearts to deny our sovereign Lord. So then that begs the question, who is our sovereign Lord? Jesus Christ. Guys, Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord Peter is talking about right here. And it's the most important thing. I honestly, I racked my brain for like a whole day because I wanted to creatively build to this moment for like a huge aha moment. But Jesus doesn't need that. He doesn't want, he was born in a manger. He doesn't want flashy reveals. He is who he said he is. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. And at the heart of all false teaching is the desire and goal to get people within the depths of their heart to deny that truth. Whether you do it blatantly or not, the goal is to get your heart to reject Jesus for who he truly is. Now, I thought this was worth pointing out as well. Notice the verse doesn't say false teachers don't know the sovereign Lord. That's not what it says. It says false teachers deny the sovereign Lord. And that is absolutely worth pointing out because here's why. I'm a false teacher if I don't warn otherwise. Please hear this. It is possible to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and yet still deny him. I'm gonna say it one more time. It is possible to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and yet still deny him. In fact, I believe that is one of the most evil, most destructive forms of false teaching. One of the most evil destructive forms would be to get people to a point where they think knowing Jesus is the equivalent of not denying him. But once again, it's possible to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and still deny him. Jesus himself warns us in Matthew chapter seven. He says, there's gonna be a bunch of people that run up to me and they say, Lord, Lord. And he's, he said, I'm gonna say away from me. I never knew you. You knew me up here. You knew about who I was, but you denied me every day in here. And once again, I believe that is one of the most evil, twisted forms of false teaching. The crazy thing is, that's just one of the many different ways people can end up denying Jesus. In fact, I really thought I was gonna spend the rest of this sermon breaking down all of the different ways we deny Jesus. I wasted another whole day with process and all that, just running in circles. But thankfully, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit convicted me and he reminded me of a parable that Jesus tells us in Matthew 13. So in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about a farmer, a good farmer who goes out and he sows some good crop in his field. And then he goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, it says an enemy sneaks in and starts sowing some weeds among, his good, among the good crop. So when the farmer wakes up and all his people wake up, they're all like, who did this? And the farmer says it was an enemy. And so some of his, some of his workers are like, well, hey, let, 
we'll go pull up all of the weeds. And Jesus said, "Mm -mm. sorry, the farmer. The farmer said, no, don't do that. Because if you start pulling up the weeds, you might pull up some of the good crop. He said, instead, wait until the harvest because the good crop will prove itself by rising above the weeds. And the farmer will see what is truly good and he'll take it home. So instead of analyzing all the ways there are to deny Christ, instead of trying to pull up all those weeds, I wanna spend the rest of our time examining whether or not we're a part of the good crop. And so I think that begs the question, what's the opposite of denying Jesus Christ? False teachers are gonna try to get you in your heart to deny Jesus Christ as Lord. So what's the opposite? The alternative to denying our sovereign Lord is to be fully surrendered to him. Okay, and so the true antidote to false teaching, it's not to be the best at analyzing false teaching. In fact, some of the people who know the most about all the ways not to deny Jesus are still the ones who are farthest from truly surrendering to him. So what does it mean to be fully surrendered to Jesus Christ? Well, Peter tells us, not in this passage, but in Acts The Holy Spirit tells us through Peter when the church first starts, he says, if you're serious about surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, here it is, it's Acts 2.38. He says, you must repent of your sins, turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If we're serious about surrender, we take these initial steps. We repent. That simply means we acknowledge that we have loved having control of our life more than we have loved Jesus for who he truly is. And we tell him we're sorry. And if that is genuine, we're baptized as a symbol that is genuine. And baptism also represents the start of a new life with him. And that new life actually leads to real transformation because God says, I'll give you my Holy Spirit. And he changes all those things in you that you could never change yourself. And he helps us be lovingly obedient to Christ more and more every day. So if you've never surrendered to Jesus, those are the initial steps. And I pray that you'll consider them. We'll have a time at the end if you wanna come forward and take those steps. But what about those of us who have already surrendered to Christ? How can we know if we're continuing to truly grow in authentic surrender? Well, I think Peter, I wanna close out by looking at three things I believe Peter points out that will help us with that, okay? And the first one is something that I feel like is so simple and so easy to overlook. And it's in that first verse again. I don't know if any of you guys caught this. He said, false teachers deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. Did that stick out to anybody? The sovereign Lord bought them. Now, why doesn't Peter just blatantly remind us Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord here? Like, why doesn't he just say, false teachers deny the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but I've cheated academically several times. And when I cheated, my goal wasn't to understand the answer. My goal was to pass the test. 
And I think Peter knows that sinful tendency in all of us. So he's not giving us the answer. He gives us a clue that references why Jesus is the answer. And the truth is, Jesus bought us. That's what the gospel is all about. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, you are not your own. You were, God bought you at a price. What is that price? What is the price God paid for you? It's the life of his fully divine son, Jesus Christ. From God's perspective, you are worth the life of his fully divine son. Maybe you don't believe it, but it's what God is trying to tell you. And I honestly believe the less you think of yourself, the less you think of Jesus Christ. But the opposite applies as well. The more you get to know Jesus Christ, the more you'll value yourself because you'll finally discover what you're worth. And the more you see Jesus for who he truly is, the more your self-esteem will grow because he reveals to you your real worth. But the only way we continue to grow in realizing who Jesus truly is, is through surrender. Secondly, a heart that is truly surrendered to Christ is grateful for judgment. As I read this passage over and over again, the number one thing that jumped out at me was the topic of judgment. I encourage you, go read this again. Go home and read this. The entire chapter is about judgment. It references it over and over again. And I think judgment is one of the primary topics that false teaching takes advantage of in today's world. We live in a time and we live in a culture that is all about this idea of you can't judge me. And unfortunately, we don't have time to dive into the topic of judgment. But for the sake of what we're talking about, this is what I think is worth pointing out. In a world obsessed with avoiding judgment, a truly surrendered soul to Christ wants judgment. It wants judgment, and in the end, it is extremely grateful for judgment. I got pulled over last week, first time in 10 years. I forgot what it was like to see those lights in my rear view mirror. Um, but I got pulled over, and um, here's the thing. I absolutely deserved it. I absolutely deserved it. And only a bad friend or an enemy would try to convince me otherwise. I straight up broke the law. And as the officer was walking up to my window, I'm not gonna lie, the sinful side of me started processing all of the excuses. And I came up with some good ones. Like I had some pretty legit excuses that I think would have maybe would have worked. But as he was walking up, the Holy Spirit's good, convicted me and he said, do what's right. I also knew I was preaching, so. When he, uh, it always helps. He got up to the window and he asked me, he said, he said, sir, do you know what you did wrong? I said, yes, sir, I absolutely do. He said, okay. And so I gave him my license and my registration. It was kind of funny while he was processing all that, my six-year-old daughter's in the back and she's plotting with my wife on how we're gonna escape from prison. And the only reason she thought we were going to prison 
It's because my wife, when she asked, what's gonna happen? My wife said, we're going to prison. So that's my wife. My eight-year-old son was in the back saying, why doesn't mom ever drive? <laughs> Apparently he doesn't think I'm a good driver. So anyways, all that to say, when the officer came back to my car, I was fully expecting to get a ticket. And I don't know what tickets are going for nowadays, but I was honestly thinking I'd owe a couple hundred dollars. Once again, I deserved it. I deserved it. But when he got up there, this officer was incredibly gracious, incredibly gracious. And he said, hey, he said, I'm gonna take care of this for you. And he said, please just care about how you drive. Now, now the gratitude and the freedom that I drove off with in that moment, guys, that is just the minuscule version of the gratitude and freedom that a surrendered soul lives with every day. And let me point this out because Satan will try to twist this. My gratitude wasn't rooted in the fact that I avoided getting a ticket. It wasn't that I didn't get in trouble. I was allowed to experience that gratitude and freedom because my debt was taken care of in a legitimate way, in a way that actually counts. Now this world has created a bunch of Ill illegitimate ways for you to try and handle your debt. They want you to try and avoid it altogether or convince you that judgment isn't a big deal or that it's not a real thing or that you won't get caught, or that what you've done wrong will just magically disappear or automatically be forgotten. And because of that type of false teaching, guys, there are people dying internally because they're trying to manage the weight of the debt that they've created with their decisions. And until we find a legitimate way to handle that debt, we'll never experience true peace, freedom, and life. God's currency isn't money. God's currency is life. And we have all created a debt with the way we've lived ours. We've created a debt where the only source of life greater than what we owe is the life of God himself. Jesus bought you. And when you see him for who he truly is, you get to live in the freedom and gratitude of actual innocence. A heart that is truly surrendered to Christ knows that. They reap the blessing and the true freedom and they approach judgment every day with joyful, humble gratitude. So finally, last thing, a heart that is pursuing full surrender to Jesus Christ loves to submit to the authority of scripture, okay? I don't think it's a coincidence that the Holy Spirit tells us about false teachers immediately after telling us about the authority of scripture. And there's so much here. For the sake of time, let's go back to judgment real quick. In order to judge something, what do you need? You need a predetermined standard. You need an absolute truth that exists beforehand that you can't argue with. The only reason I knew I deserved a ticket was because I understood the law before I broke it. Well, Jesus Christ and the life he gives, guys, that's the absolute that we're supposed to know beforehand. 
And scripture is the primary source of revelation regarding those things. So if false teaching wants to destroy lives and convince us that judgment isn't a big deal, don't you think that its best bet might be to try and subtly get rid of our connection to the predetermined standard? That's why Peter says in verse two, he says, false teachers will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And then a couple verses later, he says, it's because they despise authority. But on top of all that, this is about loving Jesus. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. A fully surrendered soul wants to love Jesus. He said, okay, obey my commands. How can you obey his commands if you don't agree to his predetermined standard? You can't even know what his commands are. A surrendered soul recognizes that and they fall in love with scripture for what it truly is. So those are three ways real quick that we can examine, am I growing in true surrender? And so we're gonna enter our time of communion now and it ties in perfectly, all right? Because real brief summary, guys, there is false teaching everywhere. And instead of wearing yourself out with all this, the true antidote is, are you connected to the opposite? Are you connected to genuine truth? And genuine truth only happens when we surrender to Jesus Christ for who he truly is. And man, we will reap so many blessings when we do. That's why communion ties in perfectly because communion is where we come, those who have surrendered to him, we come together and we are reminded of that and we live in his presence, a presence that doesn't bring judgment or anxiety. It's taken care of all that. We find our worth. We experience true innocence and freedom finally. And we see Jesus for who he truly is. And so as we take communion, let's take it in joy together. If you haven't surrendered to Jesus, but you know who he is. There's gonna be a song afterwards. I'll be up front. We have other leaders would love to come alongside you as you begin that relationship with him. So let's pray. Jesus, um, it is all about you. If I mischaracterize you at all, Lord, I pray no ear heard it. But I also know you are the son of God. You are our connection to truth and life and all good things. And Lord, I pray that we will just surrender ourselves to you more and more every day, no matter what level we're at. And so, Father in heaven, remove all evil and burdens. Please expunge this place of all of it and allow us during this time in remembrance of your son, allow every soul, whether they surrender to you or not, allow them to experience what life is all about. Just love and peace and purpose in your presence. And I pray that sincerely in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.